As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Thursday, August 11th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris on this episode. We'll discuss some recent pickups that we believe in, players that we think can make a difference down the stretch and possibly into 2023. We'll have some hitters. We'll have some pitchers as part of that group. Got a lot of good mailbag questions to get to, including one about the possibility of Juan Soto aiming for two mega contracts instead of just one. I think that's a pretty interesting uh, kernel to uh, to uh, put in the popcorn popper. What else do you do with a kernel, you know? Pretty good thread to pull on. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure why I was thinking about corn a little early for that, but um, had some questions also about why more leagues haven't shifted to saves plus holds and the pros and cons of using salaries if you're going to set up a dynasty league. So we begin with the recent pickups we believe in. Um, open question for you. We'll start with hitters. Are there any hitters you've picked up in the last few weeks? It could be from this post-deadline fab run that we just had, or even from the last month or so, guys that you've picked up during the second half that you think are going to be very productive the rest of the way and, and possibly more impactful in the future than we previously expected. Well, I kind of took this a different way, uh, not necessarily uh, the larger group of all pickups, um, but was thinking about kind of young players uh, that have turned that have come into more time uh, since uh, the the trade deadline or just recently. Um, and uh, you know, I think that one person that's really turning the corner right now, and I think you know in, in keeper leagues and stuff he's he's probably gone already, but in redrafts, Vinny Pascantino is uh, I think turning the corner. You know, I think we've been watching him and we like a lot of the process stuff, but now the results are starting to match the process. And it's a really interesting situation there in Kansas City because uh, they have a, a group of young players now uh, that are playing more than they used to be. And, um, you know, we rag on them a little bit for their development of pitching. But uh, when it comes to hitters, they're they're not they're doing pretty good. Uh, I think the credit to, to Zumwalt and crew over there. Um, so, you know, when I looked at, I made a leaderboard that we can share with people. 
um, that I chatted to you. That's uh, basically young players on bad teams that are playing a lot, uh, sorted by plate appearances in the last week. And MJ Melendez is number two because he's now playing in left field. Yeah. Um, and I faded him a little bit early on um, just because I thought that, uh, you know, he was a catcher. Sal Perez is still there. Uh, I didn't think he necessarily had, he didn't have a great uh, minor league season this year. And I wasn't sure um, what the standout uh, would be. I thought he would be kind of one of these catchers that strikes out, you know, 27, 28% of the time has good power. Uh, I thought he'd be like a 220 guy who could hit you 20 bombs as a catcher. I think he's showing a little bit more than that. You know, I think the the uh, the, the the chase rate is not that bad. Um, you know, the the contact rate is actually a little better than I thought, and the power has definitely come with him to the major leagues. And this added usage of having him play in left field uh, is really interesting to me, especially for teams that are just looking for plate appearances, runs, RBI from anywhere. You know, if you're in a 12-teamer and Melendez is still out there, you can add him and, and, and benefit from those runs in RBI. And then the last Royal that I thought was super interesting um, was Massey, who just came up. Uh, and, you know, they even have uh, Prado uh, playing. So they have Nick Prado, Michael Massey, uh, uh, Vinny Pascantino, and MJ Melendez playing very regularly. Uh, Massey is the guy that you want to pick up if uh, you're chasing batting average and want to get lucky. Because this is a guy who's going to make a lot of contact, put the ball in play. He's had really high BABIPs in his stops in the minor leagues. Uh, he sprays the ball around. And uh, not necessarily one that's going to make a lot of contact or steal a bunch of bases. But uh, if you're chasing batting average, there are worse places to go. So anyway, between the, the, that group, I, I think you know Pascantino is still my favorite. Uh, Prada looks like a low batting average slugger. Melendez is second, uh, but Prado and, and Massey have, uh, are playing a lot and uh, have their own interesting aspects. Yeah, I wonder if the Royals end up trading a young hitter for a young pitcher, given some of their pitching development issues. It certainly looks like they've got enough depth to possibly do that. And how they decide which of these guys they trade, I really don't know. Because uh, I, I think Melendez, the quality of the contact is really high. I think the adjustments he mm. made, the lost 2020 season especially, makes the improved strikeout rate from high A to double A even more impressive. MJ Melendez struck out 39.4% of the time at high A. He was young for the level. He was a 20-year-old for, I think, most of that season. Got it down to 21.9% with the promotion to double A in 2021. And again, swing change unlocked even more power. 41 combined home runs between double A AA and triple A. Very age appropriate too, even a bit young for, for double A and triple A a season ago. So it was a, that's a big development win to get that much out of a player who at one point looked like he was just going to just swing and miss too much to be more than a part-time player. So they deserve a lot of credit for that. But I think when you look at the barrel rates, the swing decisions that you mentioned, all of those things point in the right direction. Unfortunately, Melendez is a player I had to trade to try and make a run in one of my keeper leagues. Me and <laughs> I um, I don't think I'm going to win that league either. So it, you know, it happens Oops. sometimes. The, the cost of trying to get better in a keeper league sometimes is that you give up young talent and you don't get the reward. You don't finish in the money. You don't win the league. And yeah, you can't, can't be deterred by that. I mean, 
give yourself credit for having a prospect people wanted in the first place, even if you ended up trading that player away before getting to reap the benefits of, of what he can do. Yeah, you know, the, as you can tell from the through line on those all those Royals, you know, strikeout rate is such an interesting uh, aspect of uh, a young player's development because as aging curves tell us, you know, you're going to improve your strikeout rate um, until about 26, uh, 27 years old. And, you know, some of these guys come in. I remember Stanton coming in. Oh, he strikes out too much. He strikes out too much. He improved that strikeout rate, you know, to his peak seasons. And some of his peak seasons were amazing. And it's still a thing that we look through. We, we just spoke on the last show about, you know, good strikeout, good walk guys, and um, how they can pop in homers. Um, it's a bias I have. Uh, but it's interesting to think about these breakout guys with high strikeout rates because, you know, we have Riley Green, uh, J.J. Bladell, Joe Adele, and O'Neill Cruz as guys on the other end of the spectrum, more Stantonian in that they have uh, the potential for prodigious power, I think. Um, they've shown it at different times in the minor leagues, and yet they also come with this price tag, this, this strikeout rate. And I wonder if there's one of that group that stands out for you. I, you can throw Nick Prado in there, really. But if there's if there's one of those guys that that stands out, or <laughs> Jose Barrero uh, striking out fifty six percent of the time, uh, it's it's early going. Yeah, but. mind uh, <laughs> mind reader because I just opened the Barrero Fangraphs page too. It's, I saw him on that leaderboard, and I've, I've wondered. You know, he missed time with a wrist injury this year, so aside from the possible you know, implications of not feeling a hundred percent and the impact that could have on your bat speed, the swing and miss has been atrocious. So there's rust. There's a possible lingering injury. He is getting that chance right now. Uh, this was, but it was bad in the minor leagues too. It's not just the short sample in the major leagues, right? And and we've talked about AAA last year being so diluted in terms of quality pitching that holding your own or having a good strikeout rate at AAA doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have a strikeout problem. Twenty two percent last season over about two hundred plate appearances at that level. I guess that's what I'm clinging to. There's two things I'm clinging to. There was a good strikeout rate both at AA and AAA last year for Jose Barrero. And he's not just a power guy. He's also a speed guy. He was 16 mm. for 20 as a base stealer last year. So even if, let's say he's a true talent 30% strikeout rate player in the big leagues. If he can walk a little, like we're talking 4 to 5% of the time, strike out about 30% of the time, but does damage and steal some bases... I think there's actually kind of um, an Adelis Garcia sort of a profile here. And I think players like that in the past have been blind spots for me because I would look at them and get upset about the things they couldn't do instead of looking at them and saying, hey, you know, as great as that red system is, uh, Noel V. Marte and Edwin Arroyo and those young players that are coming, further far, they're, further there's, there's a whole year before they're probably going to start playing in Cincinnati. They're more 2024 than 2023. So Barrero might have this long runway for playing time next year. So I don't know if there's a whole lot Barrero can do to help you in these final two months of this season. It might just be too much swing and miss in the short term. It might be a 35 or 40% K rate while he figures it out because of all the, the injury issues and the rust. But I think if he does enough to at least 
give himself a chance to compete for a starting job next year. I could see myself being surprisingly interested in him as a bottom of the roster player in a great hitters park who has a lot of ways of making value, even if that batting average is always lower than we'd like it to be. Yeah, I see him as a uh, a pretty good draft and hold, like third shortstop type deal. Yeah. Um, and, and that's 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 a useful player to identify even now because I think you know there are de- there are deep enough dynasties where you might roster that guy just on your bench just in case he breaks out. Um, and uh, and identifying draft and hold guys early just means that when you're when you're drafting in January or December or whatever, uh, you can put some Barreros on your squads in the back and 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 maybe you you profit for it. But um, you know O'Neill Cruz, I think he's striking out more than I than I'd like. But for him, I don't see the same narrative in terms of it's a one year th- blip. You know what I see with O'Neill Cruz is just struggling with a new level. You know like. His his uh, strikeout rates have been consistently sort of 22 to 25 in the minor leagues. Um, you know, some of his contact rates have been up and down, but those are me- I feel like they're measured differently. Like rookie ball uh, strikeout rates, swing strike rates are always like crazy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think they must include fouls or something. I don't know. <laughs> like it's just it's like just a totally different thing. So I don't I don't actually look at like low A rookie ball swinging strike that much. But you know since then he's been sort of thirteen to eighteen. Um, right now he's on the sort of upper end of the swing strike rate. But really, I think he can get that strikeout rate below thirty. And I think O'Neill Cruz is is still my favorite in this group. I know that. He's striking out a bit much right now. Sometimes it looks like um, some of it's something that he can't do anything about because he's so tall. He gets he gets some bad calls uh, low in the strike zone, a little bit like Judge, where because he's so tall, it looks like a strike, uh, but it really isn't. Not for him. So uh, and he doesn't have necessarily uh, top end uh, restraint <laughs> when it comes to chasing balls. Uh, but um, I see top-end tools across the board, and I'm going to be in the tank for him again next year. I mean, 118 max EV. This guy can really wallop the ball, and uh, I, th- I just think, you know, use that aging curve philosophy and say he's 23. He's got three more years of, con- of improving his strikeout rate. I think one of those years is going to be a, you know, top. I, I think he has first-round upside. And I think I still think that to this day. Yeah, and it might take a year or two for him to unlock all of it. But I think the thing with O'Neill Cruz is, yeah, he's got the big strike zone because he's so tall. He gets to pitches that other guys can't get to. It kind of works both ways. Like, yeah, there's maybe more space that a pitcher can try and exploit against him, but they can they can miss down, and O'Neill Cruz can hit a ball at his ankles really hard, which is a pretty odd thing to be able to do. Um, I think we should look at an older player who got a new opportunity at the trade deadline when we found out about the swap that sent Darren Ruff to the Mets and J.D. Davis with some prospects back to the Giants. That we both had the same sort of, hey, what are the Giants going to do with J.D. Davis? Because there's always been a pretty interesting hitter there, even with some flaws, right? A pretty good eye at the plate in terms of drawing walks, even though there's a little more swing and miss going back to last season than we would like to see. But before last season, J.D. Davis didn't strike out an alarming amount. He's usually in that low to mid 20% range, which is very acceptable for a player with that much power. We've already seen three homers in seven games from him as a member of the Giants. So he had four and 66 games to start the season. I know there was an injury mixed in there as well. 
This is not the typical player that I'm trying to pick up in a keeper or dynasty league age-wise ordinarily, but I actually think J.D. Davis might be a good late-season pickup for redraft leagues and a surprisingly good deep dynasty pickup as well. Yeah, I think maybe a little bit more towards OBP leagues than batting average leagues. Uh, he's a little bit more of a risk there with that strikeout rate, but he still walks. He still hits for power. And, you know, for me, the... Um, the reason I made this list is I wanted to see who played the most over the last seven days. You know, that was one of the things that I sorted for when I when I shared it with you in the first place. And uh, Davis, uh, you know, comes to the top a little bit when you do that. He's not necessarily the first or second, but you just look at usage and Evan Longoria is healthy, you know, uh, and J.D. Davis is a right hander. Uh, and Evan Longoria has a club option next year for 16 million. I'm reading between the lines here. I think what they're doing is auditioning JD Davis to take over for Evan Longoria. Yeah. Because I think Evan Longoria can still be like a two-win guy. And so theoretically like sort of by the numbers, uh you know, you know, 8 million per win is a decent number uh to spend. But I, it also is just spending the market rate on an older player that may not have any upside beyond that when you have a replacement player who will cost half as much or actually about a quarter as much. So uh, I really do think that J.D. Davis might be the starting third baseman for the Giants next year. So you put those things together and all of a sudden he is uh, is a pretty good stash. And he reminds me a little bit of Luke Voigt in Washington where Voigt had been kind of falling away uh, from you know playing every day in in San Diego and had been struggling and I think just frankly was um, you know closer to being a part-time player uh, than you expected going into the season right uh, in the last week the most played appearances uh, in this group that we've been talking about went to Luis Rangifo in Anaheim who we'll, we can talk about in a second I know you like him a little bit MJ Melendez second, Luke Voigt third. 28 playing appearances in a week is full-time playing time. And he's cheap. The Nationals don't really have anybody else. Uh, it's a it's one of the better parks he's played in. I mean, it's not New York, but you know, it's a pretty good park for power. I think Voigt is Voigt's stock went up with that trade. And uh, him and Davis are are not quite this sort of young player that you would normally think about in these leagues, but I think they became way more playable, you know, in the last couple of weeks. Um, and uh, I still like them. You know, they're, they're guys who hit the ball hard. You know, that's something we like here. It's in the name. It definitely is. I, I think part of my interest in Luis Renjifo, yeah, the Angels don't have a lot to push him right now. Uh, there's a power and speed combo. He's now five or six as a base dealer this year, so he's taken off a little bit. So you get that bottom of the roster speed. Uh, K rate's down at the lowest mark it's ever been at before. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing right now is the type of profile that you're very likely to get going forward. I'm a little surprised he's swinging as many pitches outside the zone as he has this season, but maybe that's but the he way. He's a pretty he's... good hit tool if he's striking out this much and doing that, you know? Yeah, this is this is kind of a slightly better than league average player that runs a little, and guys like that tend to be good players for us in fantasy. So. I don't know if it's a high ceiling sort of thing, but he's exactly the kind of do a little bit of everything player who also has the 
ah, doesn't walk, doesn't have that that sabermetrically appealing uh, slash line that gets people to dr- be drawn to him. It's just kind of a, a decent accumulator that also offers some speed is probably the, the best summary I could put on Luis Renjifo right now. And they never put him atop any one position on their depth chart, the Angels. And it's a little bit annoying, but he is a switch hitter. The name that I was thinking about a little bit was, I think Renjifo is a, a good AL-only player next year um, because I thought of Chad Pinder, mm-hmm. um, a guy who plays all over the field, who's obviously going to be important for his team. Um, Chad Pinder is a righty, though. As a switch hitter, I think Renjifo just has more pathways to playing. And I know right now he's sort of you know, playing third and they're going to have a third baseman next year. And, uh, you know, if they come into the season fully healthy, he's probably not their starting shortstop or, or second baseman. Um, but they don't really have a starting shortstop, you know. And if they put Fletcher over at shortstop, then Renfifo could find his way uh, to starting at second base. And even if he doesn't, he can play the outfield. He can play the infield. He's a switch hitter. Um, so I I think he's... Uh, I, I I won't I'm not, you know another place where he is is that draft and hold type idea. Yep. Because he'll probably be eligible at a few places. He'll probably play, and people might not be in love with him. But late in a draft, you might be able to pick him up and back up two or three different positions for you. So draft and hold AL only. I'm in on it. And and I think you know watch him closely the rest of the season because if that uh, if that you know he hasn't really had a season other than maybe uh, his rookie season where, you know, he got a lot of plate appearances. And in that rookie season, his his chase rate was much better. So, you know, if you look at uh, a seasonal graph by game of uh, his, his uh, reach rate, uh, it took a real dive recently, you know. Um, and I wonder if that's just more playing time. And that's when he's had the best WOBA of the season, too. So there's like for him, I think there's just one more tweak that could unlock another level where he's definitively a starter. And that's if he stops chasing stuff, I would think his barrel rate could go up to about 6%. And then you'd have a guy who might have a 7% walk rate, 17% strikeout rate, 160, 170. He'd be basically average everywhere with speed. I think he would basically find his way to a starting position. Right. So even if he's not necessarily more than a late round pick outside of those draft and hold scenarios, he could still, if he's the starting second baseman, be good enough to play at least in 15 team mixed leagues. Renjifo has also started every single game since June 15th. Every single game. Second base is mostly where he plays, but as you said, they do move him around a bit. Rendon's going to come back healthy next year, hopefully stay healthy for a full season or close to it. But I think second base is really where you can see Renjifo fitting in. and, And how many games is that? Jeez, I mean, we're talking 50 games probably now for that uh, that stretch. He started about 50 in a row. Well, in the last sort of 30, his his reach rate has has really changed. So, I don't know. I think there's there's something about that everyday playing time that just gets you more used to seeing pitches and and seeing what teams are trying to do to you and trying to lay off that stuff. So. You know, I mean, being atop the leaderboard for plate appearances in the last week among a bunch of guys who are really exciting uh, is by itself, you know, makes Voight, Davis, and Renjifo uh, kind of interesting. Um, even if uh, guys like Alec Thomas, uh, Vinny Pascantino, MJ Melendez, um, 
well, how do you feel about J.J. Bleday? We haven't talked about him much on this show. Yeah, I he <laughs> I look at J.J. Bleday and I, I totally understand how the Marlins were the team that, that drafted him in that spot fourth overall. <laughs> Strikeout rates. <laughs> well, uh, I guess I didn't mean the fact to sound as mean as it, as it does. I, I, I think he's going to be a good hitter. It's just, it's power over everything else. And I think given their park, especially like they need guys that hit for real power. It's a difficult place to hit. I think it's the problem I have with the pick looking back on it is that this is the type of profile that I always see as being easier to find in free agency. These are guys that mm. frequently get non-tendered or or traded in you know, year two of arbitration, year three of arbitration. Teams never want to pay these guys eight, 10, 12, 15 million dollars at their peak. They always want to just move on to the next one. And maybe Bladey has a higher ceiling than I'm giving him credit for, but I see kind of a 25 homer, you know, 240, 250 pretty good walk rate like it's a solid player what's a two maybe a three win player most years i don't know if defensively he's going to offer enough to add positive value there but maybe he's good enough to not hurt you he just he looks like a good solid hitter and a guy that because he doesn't run a lot or at least i don't expect him to run a lot that we're going to just see him as kind of a highly replaceable fantasy player in most leagues as well i mean is there anything that you've seen so far that makes it seem like he's more than that well, in real life terms, he's playing center field. Yeah, I just don't know how long that's really going to last. Yeah, it's interesting. He's already in minus one by outs above average. Um, the other numbers like him, but it's an impossibly small sample. But uh, and and he's already started playing left field too. It's not like uh, they installed him in center and said this is our center fielder of the future. It's a little trepidation there as well. Um, what I do like is a 10% or 11% swing strike rate and a 30% strikeout rate. I don't think actually, uh, are married correctly. <laughs> so I actually, I, I think, you know, zip says he's going to strike out 24% of the time. And I think that's completely possible. Now steamer says 27, the bat says 28. And I know where that comes from too. I mean, he had a 27% strikeout rate in triple a, uh, but I think a 24% strikeout rate is possible. Now, if you take that 24% strikeout rate and you give him his 200, you know, 207 ISO, uh, now you're talking about a player that's harder to find, right? I mean, uh, if we do that, if we just do that this way, uh, 200 ISO and uh, a 24% strikeout rate, who's a comp? Let me do a quick comp here. That would be... Uh, Matt Olson, Seth Brown. <laughs> Ooh, I think that's a wide range. Similar ISOs in strikeouts. Oh, but Seth Brown has a seven percent walk rate. Matt Olson has eleven percent walk rate. I think I think Bladé is headed more towards the eleven than the seven. Um, but um, other names that also have uh, similar defensive value, maybe Randy Arozarena. Not really a good comp there. Uh, Randall Grichuk. Ooh. What is Blade right handed? He's a lefty, so he's at least a big side platoon guy. I mean, I think the floor is big side platoon guy that pops homers. Like, that's not a bad player at all. I just. David Peralta. More power, less average. Yeah. 
Um, Marcelo Zuna. On the screen, recent pickups we believe in, and we're very skeptical of J.J. Pladé. No, I'm, I'm making the argument that I like him a little more than you, I think. That's, that's fine. You can, you can have the J.J. Bladé shares. I'll... I'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'll watch. I'll, I'll sit that one out for 2023 and, and reevaluate at the end of next season. Yeah, Ryan Mountcastle. I've never been that into Mountcastle either, which might be a blind spot. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, grouping because if you go to the higher strikeout rates, then you can get the higher power. Uh, it's kind of an interesting grouping there at 24 and, and 200. There's, it's not an amazing group. We'll see what happens over the final two months with with JJ Blade too. I think that'll help really shape how much we like him or dislike him going in to twenty twenty three. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We should talk about some pitchers because people ask about pitchers all the time in the mailbag. Reds and Four sent us an email and wrote, I have a question for you regarding what to do in dynasty scenarios where you have a pitcher who has great stuff, pops an Eno's model, and has plenty of opportunity in front of him, but is stuck in an organization that doesn't seem like it's able to develop or properly utilize its pitching. Some personal examples that come to mind include Dylan Coleman in Kansas City, Chase Silseth for the Angels, and even to a lesser extent, Jansen Junk also with the Angels. All three pitchers have stuff that seems to pop in Eno's model and have had stretches this year where they've been successful, but their orgs just don't seem to be ones that can be trusted. So what do you do in this scenario? Do you hold it possible and bank on the front offices adopting new ways of thinking, or are you better off taking flyers on pitchers in more trustworthy organizations? So what do you think? I think the big variable here uh, that is true for almost everybody is in the off season they go somewhere else, um, and so in season we, you know, we might uh, look hard at the Angels and say, you know, what have they done for Jansen Junk lately, or you know, are they screwing up Chase Silthus? But in the off season, Chase is going to go somewhere else. Right. And um, that's, I think, what's made it really difficult sometimes to study player development and to study player development outcomes is our places like Driveline, but also uh, P3 in St. Louis. And uh, there's all sorts of places. Um, and so I, I don't know where these pe- people train. And even if they sit trained at, say, Driveline, you know, having a list of all the pitchers that tra- uh, trained at Driveline would not give you the golden list of who's going to be great next year. Uh, and I think that's a lesson for, uh, for even for the organizations is, uh, you know, pick players that you like. Don't pick organizations, I don't think. Um, 
you know, I know that the Rays uh, seem to put their players in positions to succeed. Um, there are people who have a different opinion of Rays player development and think that, you know, I was just talking to a pitcher the other day who thought that they actively hinder their pitchers uh, coming up in the, in the minor leagues and they're not good at player development. Um, and I think that, you know, I have a note in my notes column that I think is coming out tomorrow, um, which I think explains a little bit of the Rays um, situation almost more than anything. Uh, there's some research that says that 80 pitches, after 80 pitches, um, your command starts to go away. And that command goes away in a start quicker than stuff. Stuff can stick around for 100 pitches, but command starts to fall away. Location values start to fall away after 80 pitches. And um, lo and behold, the Rays, bottom of the league in pitches per start at 75. They don't even get to 80. You know, Corey Kluber has pretty you know decent command. They don't let him go to 90. You know, he's, he's around 83, 85. So... It's just that those some organizations put their pitchers in a position to succeed, prepare them well, take them out early, you know that sort of deal. Um, don't let them see a third time through the order. That that sort of deal. So some of that magic where you say, oh, the Rays are great at player development. Some of that is picking the right players. You know they're really good at trading for players. I think, and then you know not letting them embarrass themselves basically taking them out early so right uh that you know it's not always that they're that they're amazing at developing the guys scouting and managing the roster that might be their number one those thing. <laughs> are not the same as player development player development yeah. is is taking good stuff and making it great taking average command and making it better right? it's all it's those types of things right i think they i almost think they might be better on the player development side with bats they're the ones getting more out of hitter swings than other organizations. Rosarena, maybe to some lesser extent, Isaac Paredes. I know it's not, it's not looking as Yu good. Chang now. is doing the same thing as Paredes. He's he's turning, burning on, t- on pitches up and in, and he's got more power with the Rays than he ever had before. And then I wonder, it's like so after they get you to make that adjustment, and teams realize that's what you're doing. Do you have another thing you can do when teams pitch you differently? That probably is the wide range of outcomes between you know mm-hmm. players like Yu Chang and someone like Randy or Rosarena. Rosarena is like everything working really well, even though we've talked about the flaws in his approach before. But yeah, it's easy to confuse those things. And you've talked about this before where pitchers increasingly are realizing, and I think this probably applies to hitters too, but they, they know that they have to take their career into their own hands. This is something that younger pitchers know as well as any group of pitchers that have ever been a part of the game that in the offseason investing in themselves going to these facilities doing the things that can actually make them better i mean that that benefits them in the long run right the the financial payoff of of throwing harder adding the right secondary pitches being better does pay so there's a huge incentive in this and it's not fairy dust it's definitely not fairy dust it's not as simple mm-hmm. as i i showed up and i did the work and through in front of the machines. Now and, my slider is great. Yeah, it's like, well, you still, if you can't locate it, it's uh, still not going to matter. Yeah. Um, and then there's there's the change within organizations. Um, Sadev Sharma has a, has a really good piece about the changes within the Cubs organization in terms of pitching development. And, um, you know, I don't think that we traditionally think of the Cubs as being a good player development system for pitchers. But 
now you can look at Keegan Thompson and you know one oh for the year one oh one stuff ninety eight location ninety eight seven pitching plus is not uh, the most exciting line you've ever read, uh, but it is a guy with a bunch of pitches. Uh, the slider is is coming on recently. He's throwing it more, and that has the potential to in, increase his stuff number. Uh, with a team that's getting more out of their pitchers, you look at Steele. Uh, you know, that's I, I would say in the past I would say, well, I don't know what the Cubs are looking at because my numbers don't look like theirs, and uh, and you know, Steele. Why is that doing that? That's weird. Steele's been getting good results. For the better part Steel, of the last ninety five stuff plus ninety eight location ninety seven stuff like yeah, um, so one thing I would say is if you are looking for stashes and you are using uh, the model to to identify them, you know, I I, I was thinking about this with uh, uh, Sears going to Oakland like the the A said you know stuff is too expensive on the open market. So we're going to get guys who don't have great stuff but have a bunch of pitches. And that's something I've said on this podcast is like if you're looking for someone to pop, it might not always be the guy that has great stuff in small uh, in small sample like uh, Luis Heal always had great stuff in small samples. He's a fastball slider guy. He's maxed out in a way, right? What more can he do other than maybe go four or five, be like a Glasnowian type if he's like at the very top of the end of it or just be a reliever? Um, and, uh, I mean, Spencer Strider is like the very best outcome you can have for a high stuff guy that has two pitches, right? <laughs> like yeah. he's, he's, he's just so great at both of those two pitches. He's a glass now, you know? Uh, but those things are, are, are harder to find. So if you instead, uh, look, you know, around average, uh, stuff and you look at a guy like Bailey Falter, you know, 98 stuff, 105 location, he has a lot of pitches, and there's some evidence that he's not throwing necessarily the best uh, mix that he could throw. Uh, that That's a guy, and the Phillies aren't known as a great pitching development organization necessarily. People don't put them on the list, uh, but Falter is a guy. Uh, Chase, I think, Silta is an interesting guy. 90, 98 stuff, 98 location, uh, three, uh, definitely three pitches, you know. So, you know, Glenn Otto, 98 stuff, uh, uh, more than a Brad Keller who's in 98 stuff but is a, kind of definitively a two-pitch guy by now. So I would look for, for multiple pitches. Um, in and, and also remember that 98 stuff plus is about average for a starting pitcher. It seems like it's below average, but that includes all the relievers. Um, so you're still shopping at an okay. Like Tucker Davidson, 97 stuff plus, 97 location, definitively three pitches at least. New organization, uh, new lease on life. I think that's a stash, you know, even if he if he struggles the first time out. So that's that's something I would look for uh, beyond just the high stuff guys, because the high stuff guys, like, is there is there a high stuff guy that's under owned that nobody knows about anymore? Nick Lodolo, Roenzi Contreras, Aaron Ashby, like. You're not going to surprise anybody with that. You're not going to like, oh, just throw a little Aaron Ashby in this deal. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, I'm just going to go pick up Aaron Ashby off the wire. Probably not uh, most leagues. Maybe shallow leagues that these available. But yeah, in a typical league, the person that has Ashby believes in Ashby. I um, 
I'd love to know why we haven't seen Rolanzi Contreras back in the big leagues. I, I thought the demotion for him at the All-Star break was just roster management. Let's get an extra reliever up. We're going to manipulate the schedule. We're going to bring him back up. He's pitching in the minors. They're kind of easing him back into a full starter's workload. He came back on July 26th, went two innings, went three the next start, and went four the yeah. next. So they're really being Managing careful his with innings. him. But you could do Managing that in the big leagues. Let him, sell, let him do it again. How much does it Hand really up. hurt your big league team to let him do that in the big leagues? That's, that's always the thing that confuses me. But I think the J.P. Sears example is a good one because I think when you're talking about players who were sort of blocked on their old team, even if they're going to an organization that doesn't have as strong of a reputation for player development, he spent years in that system where they have the player development. He's got good results in the minor leagues, and now he's in a pitcher-friendly spot with job security. So the organization doesn't matter as much to me from a what-can-the-organization-do perspective as it matters from the what kind of opportunity does this guy have. J.P. Sears could be another another Nestor Cortez type. Cole Irvin, even. Or another Cole Irvin, <laughs> right. Like there's Those guys come through, they deliver great ratios, and then we're skeptical, and we're skeptical, and we're skeptical some more because they never really popped as great prospects, and it turns out they end up being valuable for a few years. I think John Means at first, when he broke in, was like that for me. No one no one wanted John Means. I'm in a, I was in a 20-team dynasty league when John Means broke through. That guy picked him up for a buck, and he ended up being an easy keeper. And some of, it's, like, some of this is just opportunity. Who is going yeah. to have an opportunity have that more prominent role. And I think with Silseth, I can see it for next year. With Dylan mm-hmm. Coleman, I have a harder time seeing it because Dylan Coleman, to me, I thought was just a, a simple, like good short reliever. And Barlow's pitched well enough where I just, I have a harder time talking myself into wanting to hold Dylan Coleman right now than I do Sears and Silseth and a lot of the other names that people have thrown out there. One thing I have done um, on my own uh, documents for the uh, for Pitching Plus is add another column that is pitches per appearance. And uh, I think that's a little bit um, more of a fine tooth, a fine... Um, it's not a kernel. It's, it's a kernel. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's more of a, a, of a fine tool than just games started or games not started. You know what I mean? Like um, there are people who are in relief that are throwing more pitches than other, other pitchers are in relief, right? Um, so, you know, to, in order to kind of sort this for this, I just did everybody over 50 pitches uh, per appearance. And, um, you know, that, that way you get a sense of who has some length, but there is something interesting that happens between, uh, 50 and, and 45, uh, you know, in 40, where you do get some of these pitchers that are in between Paulo Espino for the year has a, has 40 pitches per appearance. Um, but, uh, we know that that's been trending towards, towards starting. Um, Alec Mills is in this group where he's in between, um, and he still has that excellent command and he still pops as someone who is above average by pitching plus with really bad command. Um, I don't know. There's some other pitchers here that look kind of interesting, like Corey Abbott. Um, and, uh, and, um, even Luis Patino still. So, uh, Andre Palante, not interesting, but in this range. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Patino, I think Patino has a strong case to become the next Jose Urquidy on this podcast. Like if Urquidy graduates and, and becomes <laughs> the good pitcher we thought he could be for the last three years, Luis Patino uh, is the new chair of, of that committee. The pitcher we really like who should be good but hasn't had a chance to do it over a long period of time or had the chance and didn't do it for some reason, and we don't know why. 
uh, much like the uh, Derek Zoolander school for kids who don't read very good but want to learn how to do other things good too. Uh, uh, Kitty's really interesting though because um, you know he's had a stretch of uh, pitching at home, and he has a large split between his stuff plus at home versus on the road. It's 115 at home and 105 on the road. Luis Garcia is like 105 at home and 95 on the ro- on the road, and everybody else on the Astros is fine. So it's not a team-wide thing. I'm not suggesting they're cheating. Somebody thought I was tweeting about that because uh, they're cheating. Um, I I have asked uh, the modeler to to give me home road splits uh, for everybody for the league, so I can kind of go into this deeper. Uh, but it is interesting that. Uh, Urquidy's good stretch recently has been mostly home starts. So I would be more careful with uh, Urquidy and Luis Garcia at home in a way than I would somebody else that just had weird home road splits but didn't have weird home road stuff splits. You know what I mean? There's something... Why would his stuff be different on the home versus the road? I guess comfort is some level. There is a a dome uh, aspect to this. Domes... Uh, foster more vertical movement it looks like uh chris langan from driveline did a little bit of poking at that uh so maybe you can trust urquidy and garcia more in domes than uh, out in the wild uh but that's something i want to uh to uh, poke at a little bit further and if anybody wants to on the google doc i did put uh stuff plus and pitching plus by appearance i didn't uh say if it's home or away see you have to do some some extra math. Sorry about that. <laughs> but any aspiring Sabres out there uh, that want to do that work, um, uh, you know, have at it. I think there's uh, something there for uh, home road uh, splits and um, looking at what happens to stuff in different uh, locations. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash rates23. That's linkedin.com slash rates23 for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash rates23 and get started. Let's get to a few mailbag questions. We'll go rapid fire on these. Could Juan Soto, given his age, will be 24 in October, actually consider going for two mega deals? Uh, Tony sent us this email suggesting that maybe he gets an extension for seven years and 300 million. And then once that contract is over, he goes back onto the market as an early 30 year old that could, because of the money being different at that time, maybe get another seven plus year deal for 350 or more. Um, Do you think it's possible or do you think Soto's aiming for just the one giant contract? Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, different. Um, there's a lot of different reasons for this. This comp for me, Miguel Cabrera and uh, Juan Soto, 
are comped by their opposite field approach, uh, by by their power, by some of their early numbers, by their early starts. Um, and so I wanted to look at uh, his deal. I, I, I'm not seeing it, but didn't he he signed a, a big deal with the Tigers when he got there? Um, and then he signed a big extension. So he had an eight-year, two hundred forty-eight million. That, that's what he's on right now. That was the yeah, that was the extension. He signed that at thirty-three. Yeah. So I think Miguel Cabrera is the uh, the problem. The only problem with using Miguel Cabrera as the um, model for Juan Soto is Miguel Cabrera. I just mean like no, well, mean, there's, there's a big now. difference though. Like, I just mean like how it's ending. You know, I think a lot of people look at Pujols how it ended and Cabrera how it ended and be like, I just don't want to be uh, the Tigers on the hook for uh, you know what what have they been paying him? They've been paying him thirty million a year and they've been getting uh, replacement level. Sure. Yeah, replacement level for five years, six years. So like that that was not a good contract. Uh, by the numbers, by war, by all that. I, he can go for it, but I don't know that necessarily the market will give it to him. I think more likely he'd want an opt-out around age 29, 30, 31, and then yeah. if things are going really well, he can read the market, opt-out, and either yeah. get more years from his current team or go to free agency a second time. That, to me, seems like the deal that Soto uh, and his agent would want. I mean, he definitely wants the high AV. Like that was one of the reasons he was rejecting the deals that the Nationals offered. Right, and that leaves the door open for a shorter deal. But I think the opt-outs, like I get security, but I also have the option if I want to go out and, and test the market again. And I think a team might be willing to do that because that might be the difference in in getting him versus not getting him. Especially a team like the Dodgers. Yes, exactly. They love higher AV, shorter contracts. They would love to do that. Got a question here from Dave. Dave wants to know why hasn't there been a shift away from saves and towards saves plus holds leagues? I think this has come up occasionally during draft season. I don't play in any saves plus holds leagues. I didn't like holds initially because I felt like it was another garbage stat. And as I once said it under the radar, a garbage stat saves plus another garbage stat just means more garbage. The truth is it does actually balance things out. I've looked at some leagues more recently that play this way. You get some, uh, you get a better distribution within the category. And it softens some of the issues that we talked about on the last episode where you have this hyperinflated closer pool that kind of, I don't know, it puts an unnecessary strain on the decision-making process to try and chase those players early or to play the waiting game. So saves plus holds definitely helps eliminate that. I've got a couple leagues uh, where I play with it. Usually I play with uh, saves and holds. Um, And... What that does is it, it does something very similar, but it's not exactly the same because saves and holds uh, just means that there's a wider market of players that everyone's interested in. Right. You know, people are interested in setup men. That uh, that helps. Saves plus holds, I, I think uh, you still actually want to have a, a high-end closer as your number one because saves uh, in terms of in terms of uh, who teams give saves to over the season um, they give it to fewer pitchers they they will give saves to two pitchers uh, largely over the season or maybe three uh, but holds they'll give a lot of holds to you know two or three pitchers for a little bit of time and then they'll switch and it'll be a whole new two or three pitchers you just think 
Think about guys who've pitched the seventh and eighth uh, for good teams all this year, and they've just they go up, they go down, they go away, they you know they get hurt. Jonathan Malizaga, you know Chad Green, you know like just think about the Yankees who've been amazing. Uh, they've cycled through a lot of different players in the hold spot. Uh, and I would have said to begin the season, oh, a guy I can I can really bet on for holds, Chad Green, baby. Love Chad Green. I buy Chad Green in all my holds leagues. I did get Michael King, and then he got hurt. So I, I just feel like the holds part comes and goes even. Holds are like a lesser saves. They're even worse. They're, because... they're worse. They shouldn't be their own category. That's the, that's the change I don't want. I'm fine with yeah. them as a combined category now, and I didn't used to be. I do not want holds as a sixth pitching category because it's awful standalone. It's pretty bad. And uh, what I end up doing, like I have one league where I have six SP slots and six RP slots. Six RP slots. It's a lot. Six. And we have saves and we have holds as separate categories. I end up trying to fill my RP slots mostly with closers. Um, and then I do a lot of SP eligible guys because that actually is where you can get holds. And, you know, John Duran, Tanner Houck, a lot of these guys that were starting pitchers before filter through the back end of the bullpen towards the ninth inning, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can get holds. Griffin Jacks, there's a lot of guys that, uh, that I, and, and, and Pitching Plus can help you really identify them. Generally, Pitching Plus is really solid with relievers. And if you are in a saves and holds league, I would be looking at that as a, a destination for who's a good reliever and who's going to pitch a lot. Uh, in high leverage. So uh, I think generally I don't mind it though. It's just another rule. I can, I can win. I figure out how to win. People are slow to change. That's why it's not happening in more leagues. I'm guilty of this. Sometimes I go kicking and screaming on, on things like that. I shouldn't really care quite that much. I think, and you're right though, that holds are kind of garbage. I mean, it's like, it's like saves, but even worse. But I think adding them to saves at least opens up that pool of players a little bit more. And then you get to the point where the the most high leverage relievers on the best teams end up getting rewarded a bit better that way. It's a slight improvement, I think. And I didn't think I'd be more at that players point. Players in the pool is better. I mean, it is, I, I like that. I like I like that there's a place. I mean, there's a lot of uh, like Michael King should have been owned. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. great. Players should be rostered. Yeah, that's the way fantasy should work. We'll have more questions on pretty much all the episodes for the rest of the season. It's that time of year where the mailbag opens up a lot. We try to help people out. We'll have more dynasty and keeper questions, but anything that you want to send our way, you can send to us via email rates and barrels at theathletic.com on Twitter. You can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. You can also leave questions under this video on YouTube as well. Be sure to hit the like button and subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't done so already. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, we really appreciate that if you could take a moment to do that. Uh, if you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, get one for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. That deal might not be there forever, so take advantage of that while you can. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Monday. Thanks for listening. Thank you.